My name is Jesse Rappaport. I'm a filmmaker, screenwriter, and podcaster. When I first heard the story of Bobby Joe Kesey, the first thought I had was, this would make a great movie. You see, Kesey's life story is exactly the kind of cowboy-esque Americana Jack Sparrow shit that Hollywood loves to spin as a hero's tale. But on this point, let me be emphatic. Kesey was no hero. He was a fraud, he was a thief, and he was a murderer who destroyed not only the lives of his known victims, but undoubtedly those of their families. So why am I telling his story? Because Kesey, even though he's not the hero, is also not the villain either, at least not entirely. As you'll come to find out, there were numerous individuals and institutions that kept giving Kesey more and more opportunities to harm people for his own financial gain and personal gratification. And perhaps the scariest thing about Kesey's story is that Kesey's not that unique. Hell, turn on the news right now, you'll probably see someone just like him. In his lifetime, as well as after it, many journalists have written about Kesey's exploits. Many have chalked Kesey's story up to some innate predisposition to do wrong. That Kesey was merely a bad seed, or maybe he was uh, a soldier down on his luck. And frankly, given the plethora of sociological research on criminality available today, I think that's a crock of bullshit. Now, I'm not an expert, and I'm also not a journalist. I'm just an artist who asks too many questions. I can't promise that I'll do much better at finding the answers many before me have failed to find. But what I can promise is to share everything I do know and to ask questions the best I know how, and maybe, just maybe, together we can find some better solutions to both the harm caused by Bobby Joe Kesey and people like him, and the harm that spawned Bobby Joe Kesey and people like him. If we can do that, maybe there won't be so much harm to address in our future. So grab your popcorn and fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a turbulent ride on this, the story of the so-called Soldier of Misfortune. Bobby Joe Kesey was born in 1935 in a small Texas panhandle town called Wheeler, about 70 miles from the nearest big city, Amarillo. He was the youngest of four siblings. A few years prior to his birth, oil had been discovered in Wheeler, and as people tend to go where the money goes, Wheeler became quite a bustling small rural Texas town. Despite this, at the time, many people in rural Texas lacked electricity and would not get it until the late 30s or even the early 40s. It's quite possible Kesey was among them. If you don't remember your U.S. history or your John Steinbeck, the 1930s were not a good time in Texas, or anywhere in a country that was in the throes of the Great Depression. Not only did the Depression hit Texas, there was a little environmental disaster you might remember called the Dust Bowl. Frequent dust storms aptly nicknamed Black Blizzards were so powerful that you couldn't see in front of you. If the extreme dust and high winds weren't enough, the resulting static electricity could be strong enough that shaking hands with someone could create a shock powerful enough to knock you back as if you'd been hit in the chest with a shotgun blast. Massive grasshopper infestations usually followed, which would decimate any crops still left, wreaking huge financial losses on farms and property owners. Clearly, dust storms left a lot of immediate damage, but they also caused serious long-term damage to any survivors. Diseases like asthma, bronchitis, the flu, pneumonia, and even silicosis, a lung disease so serious that it usually is only seen in mine workers, became prevalent. 
and the damage was not just physical. Even without environmental catastrophe, mental health issues among rural males is fairly well documented, including an increased risk for depression and suicide. Studies have shown that drought conditions, including the Dust Bowl, exacerbated these issues. When in 1941 the U.S. declared war on Japan and the other Axis countries, the U.S. was pulled out of the Depression by the good old military-industrial complex, and Texas was a big winner. In fact, 7% of all American service members in World War II were from Texas. Texas trained and housed over 1 million U.S. troops, and many refineries and manufacturing jobs that popped up turned Texas from a rural agricultural economy into an urbanized industrial economy. So why am I telling you all this information you've probably already been taught and definitely didn't give a shit about before? Because I need you to understand that this Texas, the environmental and financial disaster zone saved by a war, was the Texas Bobby Joe Kesey grew up in. Kesey made it to the eighth grade and then dropped out. A few years later, at age 17, he pretended to be a year older than he was to get into the National Guard and soon after, into the Army. After completing basic training, he was deployed to Korea as a paratrooper during the Korean War. If you know as little as I did about the Korean War before I researched this podcast, you're definitely not alone. Fought by numerous countries in what was essentially Eastern communism versus Western democracy, the Korean War is also known as the Forgotten War because it received relatively little press coverage at the time and historically since. World War II had ended just half a decade prior and the public was, how can I put this, kind of worn out. Nevertheless, it was also one of the most bloody, destructive wars of the modern era. Hundreds of thousands, perhaps even over a million soldiers were killed on all sides, including about 50,000 U.S. service members. The Korean civilian casualties are estimated to be in the millions. War crimes, including massacres of civilians, were common, including by U.S. forces who were wary of spies and undercover civilian hostiles. These killings were many times not just condoned, but ordered by officers in the U.S. military. In retrospect, experts have characterized U.S. forces as underprepared and under-equipped. And, when it was all said and done, it was, well, not done at all. North Korea and South Korea are still technically fighting that war to this day. All that bloodshed over the politics of a country on the other side of the world and no constructive results? Where have I heard that one before? Anyway, Kesey served a return to the United States in 1953. It was soon after his return from Korea that his long, high-stakes career of fraud would get its somewhat inauspicious start. Kesey claimed to have been given the Purple Heart and Bronze Star for his service in Korea, but this, according to records, is not true. There's no record of him ever being injured, at least not in combat. In all my research, the most I could find was some speculative evidence that Kesey may have been injured during off time on a base, possibly during a pickup sports game, but nothing else. Kesey's story is so fascinating to me, so at times mind-boggling, that it's led to some late nights, whether doing research or just stuck pondering some of these seemingly unanswerable questions. For that reason, I'm especially grateful to our sponsor, VitaDreams, for creating such an effective and delicious sleep aid. It's a proprietary blend of compounds you've likely already heard of, and they work together to help you sleep well, dream happy, and wake up the next day ready to run a marathon. And if that isn't enough, they come in delicious gummy form. I'm serious, if I had time to sleep all day, I'd eat these things like candy. They're that good. Each bottle contains four flavors. Slumberberry is my favorite, and if you have any taste, I'm sure you'll agree. 
when you go to qrco.de slash s-l-e-e-p-e-z and get yourself a free sample shipped right to your door. Just pay the shipping. You can find a link and more info in the episode description. Now back to our story. We, we have this like phrase, right? War stories or something, which I think gets at the idea that people are always kind of lying about war and what happened in war. We like to imagine as a society that it's like very glorious and there's like a lot of heroism when it's, that's, I think, not actually the case. So I think it's like pretty human for people to inflate, magnify, make things braver, more exciting, more prestigious than they were. Rachel Monroe is a freelance writer whose work has been published in the New York Times, The Atlantic, and Wired Magazine, just to name a few. In 2020, Rachel wrote an article in The New Yorker magazine about the phenomenon of valor theft, which is a term to describe the act of A, lying about having served in the military at all, or B, trying to embellish the truth of one's actual military service. Aside from Rachel's article, there really isn't a whole lot of information about valor theft out there. But according to Rachel, it's not only as American as apple pie, it's also almost as ubiquitous. So why do so many people, mainly men, commit valor theft? Military service is held in so high regard, and we give uh, people who have those credentials this kind of automatic deference. We give them automatic credibility. You know, there are things that we assume about them right off the bat. So it makes sense that folks would want to, uh, who can't get those um, things honestly, would want to come by it uh, dishonestly. So, you know, a lot of the people that you see um, committing stolen valor out there are in that category of like, they're just, I think of them as like pathetic, right? And often um, the saddest ones are people who like did serve in the military, right? And instead of just saying like, yeah, I had this honorable service, it was totally ordinary. They have to like inflate themselves. And then they were, you know, on SEAL Team 6 and it just becomes ridiculous. And you're like, dude, you were just, you know, like, a mechanic. That's great. That's fine. You served your country. And then you have this other category of people where they are, the, the lying about the military service isn't sort of this like isolated thing. It's part of this much broader pattern of deceit and manipulation. There are definitely like a lot of those guys out there um, and they, they lie about their military service because it can give them an in you know, sometimes to like people will give them jobs or trust them with, you know, a business or an investment opportunity or, you know, like trust them with money. There's a whole category of these guys who will lie um, as a way of like romancing women, right? So you make yourself into like a war hero, then you date a woman and like steal all her money. That's like really tragically common. And so I think it's, it is important to sort of draw that distinction. And, and I don't know if it's like a clear cut line, maybe it's more of a spectrum of the people who are, um, you know, the, their lies about their military service seem sort of confined. That's like a little pocket of their life that's um, untruthful. And these people who sort of build their entire lives on this foundation of, of untruth. Rachel says that while valor theft isn't the best predictor about whether or not someone is likely to, I don't know, steal a plane or even kidnap someone, it is a symptom of the same underlying conditions that would lead someone to commit more desperate, destructive acts. Some people, you know, the, the um, kind of career criminals that we were talking about, I think sometimes they, they're lying because it's, because it's fun, um, because they get a thrill out of it. But this, the more average 
practitioner of stolen valor that we're talking about. They want some sort of attention, right, or validation that they're not getting elsewhere, and they feel like the only way to get it is to invent, reinvent themselves, reinvent their ordinary experience um, as something outside the ordinary. I'm thinking in particular about this one guy who was uh, served in Afghanistan, and he did serve, and then went on to sort of uh, claim all of these injuries that had actually happened to a guy that he served with. They hadn't happened to him, which is an incredible violation and, and really rude. But uh, at the same time, I couldn't help but see that as the guy who was lying did probably suffer some sort of trauma being in that war. I mean, just being in war is traumatizing. But somehow, like, he couldn't say that straight. He couldn't, he couldn't say it straight. So he had to invent, you know, a, like a, an external wound, a crazy story that justified um, his pain. So it's a lesson in how we don't, in this culture, and I think it definitely is, like, complicated and tied up with, like, ideas of masculinity that we have, you know, like, a war wound is, like, your arm got blown off, right? You have scars, it's a physical wound, and we're only barely starting to scratch the surface on PTSD and the way that these things are traumatizing uh, in an emotional, psychological way that you can't, you know, physically point to. Do you think that that says something about how we define masculinity and what our expectations are of men in our society? You know, of course, stolen valor is going to be primarily a masculine affliction since our military is like overwhelmingly masculine. So, but I think, yeah, this, this idea, this almost like allergy to um, seeing yourself as ordinary or, um, you know, just being a regular person like all of the other people is somehow unacceptable or like insulting almost. Are there any other, for lack of a better word, subcultures in which this kind of behavior is prevalent? The militia movements and the right wing, particularly like on the radical fringe activism. There's a lot of stolen valor going on in there. I think the parallels to like to white supremacy and it's, it's like quite clear. Under the false auspices of a war hero, Kesey decided to continue his service in the military for almost an entire decade. He went on to serve at bases in Japan, Germany, and Iceland. He also managed to rack up a few promotions, eventually getting promoted as high as sergeant. But all that ended in January 1962, when Kesey went AWOL from his base, Fort Huachuca in Arizona. Kesey would embark upon a 13,000-mile, 25-state tour in a stolen car. During this interstate joyride, he would later admit to writing over 50 bad checks. But all that pales in comparison to what he got into once his joyride ended in Albuquerque, New Mexico, two months later. Join me for the next episode as Bobby Joe Kesey's story only begins to take off. Available now wherever you listen. Thank you so much to my guest, Rachel Monroe, for appearing on this episode. I highly recommend you check out more of her written and recorded work, which you can find at her website, www.rachel-monroe.com. You can also check her out on Twitter at R-A-C-H-M-O-N-R-O-E. In the meantime, if you enjoyed this episode, don't keep it a secret. Please rate and review the show on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, you should check out my other podcast, Still Cherried, which you can find on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Once again, thank you to our sponsor, Vita Dreams, for their support. And most importantly, thank you for listening. <laughs>